Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read a larger section this week. We're actually moving deeper into Genesis 1, verses 5 through 13. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit, with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and plants bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Let's pray for a moment. God, we ask that uh, you would meet us here in this place. We come for a variety of reasons. Some are checking out our church this morning, both here in the room and online. Some show up every week because this is part of the rhythm of our lives, and we realize that we need to gather with, with other Christians who are seeking to find you and worship you and learn about you. Some come Because they know that we open the the Word of God and we explore together what it means and we ponder the way that it impacts our lives and our thinking and who we are becoming. Some come because here in the quiet spaces, there are times when you break through and you whisper to us. We ask that you would do all of these things and that you would be present here not just because we call on you, but because you are here with your people when, whenever we gather in your name. And some of us come to serve. There are some that are teaching or serving or ushering or manning the cameras this morning, and we serve because we're a part of this local fellowship and, and the ministry that we have together in trying to reach our friends with the good news of Jesus, His saving grace, His radical forgiveness and His presence in our lives that changes us and little by little makes us more like Jesus. Lord, we ask that You would further Your goals for each of us. We remember Tom as he's going through chemotherapy, and we ask that You would strengthen him and gear him up this week for the next round in in that fight. We pray for Teresa as she's healing from her surgery on her back. We ask that You would, little by little, day after day, make her stronger. Lord, we ask that You would Bless and guide all of those here this morning who have a a silent request or a physical need that's, that's impacting them or they're calling out to you and asking for help. We ask that you would supply the strength that we need, the hope that we need, the wisdom and vision that we need to take whatever the next step is in life. God, as we confess to you that we are sinners in need of grace, we ask that you would continue to forgive us and that you would allow us to go away from this place refreshed, renewed, re-envisioned, and restored to your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. A few summers ago, our family took a, a trip to see the Grand Canyon. 
I hadn't been there since I was 10 years old, and so it was a great delight to, to be back and to take in the majesty of the canyon. My in-laws had it on their bucket list, and so Sue and I decided we would join them, and then we were delighted that both of our young adult daughters chose to come with us. At that time, none of us realized that this would probably be the last vacation that we would ever take together as a family, because my in-laws are now gone, and, and my, my daughters, as they get older, uh, don't seem to want to come along with mom and dad anymore on family vacations. How can that be? We got to the south rim of the canyon at night, and even though the sun was going down, I remember standing in front of that vast, amazing chasm, watching where the river had long ago cut its way through all of that sandstone. Not only did the canyon take our breath away that night, but as the sky drew, uh, grew darker, we noticed that the stars seemed to shine more brightly than we'd ever seen before. They were on full display far from the ambient light of the cities that tends to block our viewpoint of the stars, we had this amazing opportunity to, to see how majestic the skies really are. Now, here's the point of telling you that little story. That combination of the Grand Canyon and the starry skies filled me with a sense of awe that evening. Awe over how vast and inspiring parts of our world and parts of our country can be. And also with humility. Humility from thinking about the God who called the stars to their places and who has overseen all of the changes that have shaped our world. I chose to begin with that observation today because we've come to a section of Genesis where the Bible talks about the, the way that the world began to unfold. And in this series, we are looking at bedrock principles that are revealed in the first chapter of Genesis, which provide us with a foundation for understanding God, the world, and our place in it. Here's the question that I have behind this morning's message. What sensations does God's creative work produce in us? And here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning. I'll give it to you right up front. Genesis invites us to explore the shape and structure of God's creation with both awe and humility. This morning our theme is Ordering Heaven and Earth, and the subtitle is Elements of Structure and Shape that are embedded within the account of chapter 1 of Genesis. Here's what I discovered this week as I was pondering this theme. The first is that we find a God who sees and watches. Verse 10 says, and God saw that it was good. Usually when we read that verse, we're focused on the goodness, about how, how God pronounces that over the world. But before you get there, stop and look at that verb in there, that God saw something. God was looking. We find a God who sees, and we find a God who watches. This may seem like a rather simple observation, and yet it is revealing. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through through 10 present to us the first three waves or three days of creation. Then God steps back, observe all that he has done, all the work of his hands. He sees it all and pronounces it to be good. This statement that it was good is repeated a number of times in verse 1, in, uh, in, in verse 18, in 21, in 25, and finally in, in verse 31. I mean, that should have been verse 10, not 1 at, at the beginning there. And we are going to deal with this goodness factor and what that means next week. That'll be the focus of what we talk about. But right now, I want to point out that Genesis describes 
a God who sees, a God who is observant, a God who is watching. Genesis is telling us that God is personally engaged with our world. I think that's an amazing discovery and an encouraging discovery. Think of this. Genesis is, is first, the first written attempt to depict the God behind creation. The nations around the people of Israel had theories about how the world got here, and they worshipped other gods, and so there's a contrast that is deliberate. The gods of the nation were carved from wood and stone and reflected elements of creation. Some of them looked like birds or animals or sea creatures. Moses, who is either the author or editor of Genesis, is aware of all of these idol gods. So it is important that we notice how Genesis describes a God who is above all of creation, who is the force of all creation, and that he himself is greater than every aspect of that creation. He's also not an inanimate figure of wood or stone like the idols of the nations. And when he first saw the world and what he had begun to create, he pronounces that it is good. Okay, why does this matter to you and me all these years later? Imagine that you're reading the Bible or you're reading the book of Genesis for the first time. And, and no doubt there are some who are doing that because there's some people who start every January saying that they're going to read through the Bible this year. And maybe you started with the book of Genesis. We realize that Genesis starts off by introducing us the God of the beginning. That's the way the first verse starts. And so we naturally wonder, well, what kind of God is this? Is this a God who can be known? And therefore, what can I know about him? Is this a God who is good? And do I want to know him? Is this a God who cares about us? And are there signs of that which will give me hope? So early on in chapter 1 of the Bible, Moses tells us about a God who sees and who watches carefully. This God is unlike all of the idols who are controlled by the people who make them. This God takes great interest in our world, in His work, and in all that He provides. And His work is good. Good for whom? Well, that's where we're going next week. Knowing that God is engaged is a building block that leads us toward the ability to trust God. So far, we have seen that God alone existed before the beginning, that when God speaks, He speaks with authority and action results. We focused on those two words that in, the, in the simplest interpretation of the opening verses of Genesis where God says, light be and light was. And now we see that God is interested. He sees, He observes, and He is engaged in our world. Here's the second discovery we make from these verses this morning. God is concerned with shape and structure, with the shape and structure of our world and everything we see around us. So verse 5 starts out by saying, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault and the water from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. After the beginning, Genesis walks us through these days of creation. And there are three in view with the passage that we read here today. On day one, we see the naming and separation of light from darkness. On day two, we see the partitions between the seas, the atmosphere, and the heavens. 
that word vault is simply an ancient way of saying that they didn't know how fully to explain the atmosphere and how some things stay down here and some things stay up there. But it's obvious that there was a separation made. And on day three, we'd see distinctions between the borders of the seas and the land. Along with these distinctions comes the growth of land, vegetation, and seed-bearing fruit. And with each day, as, as each day unfolds, with each separation, we see progressive steps of shape and structure. How brilliant that 3,500 years ago, Moses saw God's hand in all this shape and structure of our world. None of this is presented as a cosmic accident. All of this is presented as what Psalm 19 calls the handiwork of God. The heavens proclaim His handiwork. That the stars and the skies speak to us day after day. They pour forth speech, Psalm 19 says. This shape and structure is seen in a series of separations that are talked about here in these verses or of the creating of boundaries. There's the period before time that is separated from the beginning. Light is separated from darkness. The skies and the heavens are separated from the waters. The land is separated from the seas. The sun, moon, and stars separate day from night. Land animals are separated from those who inhabit the skies and the seas. Animal life is separated from human beings who are created in the image of God. And God is separated from human beings. We reflect God, and yet God is so much greater. And we find all of this within just the opening chapter of the Bible. These boundaries are important. They help us make sense of our world and to find our place in it. All of these provisions contribute to what is called the fine-tuning of our world, something that we will talk about more in coming weeks. And so Genesis tells us that God is the careful designer and creator of all that we see. And that as the Creator, He has designed the world with everything needed to sustain human life. Our world contains powerful forces beyond our control, like wind, ocean, and earthquakes. Yet our world is governed by forces that allow the vegetables and fruit to grow, animals and birds to roam and fly, gravity that allows us to walk on the earth, and an atmosphere with that rare combination of 21% oxygen and 78% nitrogen that lets us breathe the air that we take for granted every day. Scientists realize that there are about 20 factors that make life sustainable on Earth that have not been discovered in such a combination on any other planet or any other galaxy in the universe. Gravity, our distance from the sun, if we were any closer we would burn up if we were any farther away we would freeze up an atmosphere that that provides air that we breathe that uh, an atmosphere that protects us from the sun's rays it's no wonder that God stepped back and looked at all of this and all the forces that govern our world that we don't even see in operation day after day and God says this is good this is really good There's also a structure in the story as well. So we go back to just a few of these verses that I want to highlight. Verse 5 says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Notice the pattern that develops here in verse 8. It says, God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then we jump to verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
part of the structure of Genesis 1 involves these six days of creation. And so we're left with the question, how are we to understand these days? And, and this is where often the debate begins to unfold. Does the Bible itself require that we, re, we receive these and understand these as six 24-hour days? Or are there other options? Dr. R.C. Sproul, who was a Presbyterian theologian and, and preacher, uh, he helped draft the original Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. So, so, so no uh, average conservative, very much committed to the inspiration of Scripture. Yet he wrote, when people ask me how old the earth is, I tell them I don't know, because I don't. Sproul notes that there is no place in the Bible that declares exactly how old the earth is. Yet some Christians divide camp from other Christians based on how we perceive the age of the earth and based on how we interpret Genesis 1. First of all, we need to see that the six-day structure, no matter your viewpoint, it is a good thing. It offers us a simple way to remember the six waves or six layers of the creative process. They teach us that God was involved in every aspect of that process, regardless of time. And they provide a poetic structure that even a child can memorize and ponder. I think if you were going to break something into a list of six days or six features, six, six lists that you've got to memorize, having the tool of remembering what comes each day makes it a little bit easier. So each day offers us another layer to marvel over and to thank God for. Each day reminds us of God's hand in providing for us. Yet, this six-day structure also provides some challenges. We find that there is evening and morning on the first three days that we just read about before the sun, the moon, and the stars are fixed in their places. Why is that a problem? We tell time and we tell the length of days based on our positioning in correspondence with the sun, the moon, and the stars. We tell time based on the earth's annual rotation around the sun and by its daily rotation on its axis. So that raises a thorny question. What is a day before the sun, the moon, and the stars are fixed in those places? The Hebrew word yom for day adds, actually adds to this question that we have. While the primary use of the word yom means a 24-hour day, and, and I'll admit that the vast uh, majority of the usages are talking about one specific day and time. Yom itself is interpreted differently within the Bible and within the Old Testament. Let me just stick to the Old Testament here. Yom can refer to a 24-hour day. Yom can refer to a, a human lifespan like the day of David or the day of Solomon. Uh, it says in Psalm 90 verse 10, our days may come to 70 years. So it's talking about a lifespan. In Ruth chapter 1, we find in the opening verse, it says, in the day of the judges. Well, that day was an era of about 300 years. Same word, used three different ways. And then here's a fourth way. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. And then if we jump to the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3 echoes that. It says, remember this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Well, that's an epoch. And so we see that this same word within just the Old Testament itself is used four different ways. It can mean a 24-hour day. It can mean your lifespan. It can mean uh, a broad period of time like an era. And it can mean 
a much longer time where a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. You may be aware that some advocates for the 24-hour days of creation and therefore a younger earth claim that because this was the dominant meaning of the Hebrew word yom in the Old Testament that it must refer to 24-hour days here and that the repetition of morning and evening demands the most literal translation that it was trying to say that this happened in, in six 24-hour days. Before you land there, though, let me challenge you with this thought. There are several very conservative biblical scholars who add in these factors. For instance, a, a number of those who are advocate for 24-hour days insist that we would never have thought about broader periods of time if it wasn't for Darwin and beginning to say that uh, the earth was thousands and millions of years old. Yet, all the way back in the 5th century A.D., Augustine wrote that it was nearly impossible to determine the lengths of these days of Genesis. He wrote that in his massive City of God, which he's most well known for. Some other theologians like Machen and E.J. Young and Carl Henry, some of the strongest critics of theological liberalism, wrote that it is, quote, gratuitous to insist that 24-hour days are involved or intended, unquote. I once met Gleason Archer, who was the president of Trinity Seminary near Chicago in those days. He was fluent in nine Semitic languages. This guy knew the Bible better than just about anybody because he was so, so fluent. And he wrote that it was his conviction that six 24-hour days could not have been intended by the biblical author when you know the Hebrew language well and you see the poetic structure of chapter 1. Here's the point that I'm driving at. Genesis invites us to explore the shape and structure of God's creation with awe and humility. It's there for us to explore. It's why Psalm 19 and Psalm 8 literally invite us to look at the handiwork that God has done that is displayed for us day after day in the skies and to ask the hard questions that God is not afraid of the tough questions. Okay, why does all this matter? A couple of thoughts about this. The first is that dogmatic arguments often rest on claims that the Bible itself does not make. And those kind of arguments may cause unnecessary conflict. I actually believe that much of the conflict that is perceived between science and faith is unintended by the Bible and isn't necessary in certain cases. People from both sides tend to read their viewpoints into the Bible. And I've noticed this, if I've tried to track this debate and try to figure out how do I understand all this. I was raised within a church culture that said that the, wor the world is not very old and that these are six literal days of, of creation, 24-hour days. And yet, as I grew older, I had to figure out what is the Bible telling me and what do I believe? I had a dad who was an engineer who used to love to ask tough questions. And he, he would say, you know, when I look at the world... And I wonder, uh, you know, what do these days mean when there are places in the Bible that a day can mean something more than 24 hours? He bought into something that was called the day-age theory, that each day was meaning to explain uh, an age of, or a period of time within which God was creating. So from the time I was a teenager, I started asking questions about all this. People who believe in a Darwinistic viewpoint of materialism, tend to view the world by blocking out God, and they want to look at all this as mythology 
and they read that mythology into the text. People come up from the other side saying, we want to defend the Bible against that kind of materialistic view of creation, tend to read it from the 24-hour lens. I'd like to suggest that the text itself offers us some clues. When you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, it is obvious from a structural standpoint that there are some poetic elements that are built in here. So we have the repetition of evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day, and yet it's not until the fourth day when we are told that the sun, the moon, and the stars are put in their fixed places. It seems to me that there's a poetic rhythm that is part of the way that fathers and mothers handed off this idea of God as the creator and of steps in a creative process to their children that they could memorize in a day-by-day fashion. David Cote and I often talk about this. David, in addition to being a wonderful worship leader and guitar player and all-around instrumentalist, has a master's degree in physics from MIT, and he thinks a lot about this kind of stuff. And we were talking uh, last week about uh, this particular series that we're in. He said, I'm so glad you're doing this because what I find in my conversation is the number one thing that chases young Christians away from the church is when we are forced into some kind of a literal pattern of understanding the world that automatically puts them in conflict with the science that they love. I believe that we can learn to approach theories of creation with humility and awe. Our pastors and leaders here at North River have chosen to avoid fighting over views of creation. I've had friends within the 33 years of North River's existence who hold fast and argue firmly for a young earth 24-hour day period of, of creation. And I have other friends who see these days as long periods of times, as of epochs of time where God was at work, the designer but yet using natural forces. We can exist side by side if we approach Genesis with humility and awe. I believe that Genesis should produce that kind of humility in us as well as awe. Why humility? Christians have often been asking tough questions about these days all the way back to the 5th century and Augustine. Dedicated biblical scholars disagree over their theories of creation, yet they are radically dedicated to the Scriptures. However long it took, God's grandeur is on display. And we have an inability to completely explain exactly how all the pieces got put in place. Why awe? We were not there in the beginning. The world around us is magnificent and awe-inspiring. And Genesis 1 essentially begs us to ask these probing questions without providing all the answers. And so we continue to go back and praise God through Psalm 19 and Psalm 8, which tell us to marvel over the way that God's handiwork speaks to us. The Bible itself does not state how old the earth is. Have you ever noticed that? I dare you to go look page by page and find a place where the Bible tells us exactly how old it is. So really, we're not arguing with the Bible. We're arguing sometimes with the ways that we interpret it. We were not there in the beginning And the world around us is magnificent and awe-inspiring. And it takes your breath away. I believe that God is drawing people in the science community to faith. As we kind of lay down our weapons and we, we both demonstrate humility and awe in the midst of the process. 
good science can lead to faith. Today, there are a handful of disciplines that are leading some scientists back to the God of the Bible. One of those is cosmology. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, where there are some scientists that were taught that there was a steady-state universe, that everything up there has always been there. But through the Hubble telescope and the one that's followed after it, I believe it's the Webb telescope, they can see more and more that the expanding universe tells us that there had to be a beginning from which it expands. And yet, as all of that movement slows down, it suggests that there is an ending that is coming at some point. That has led some scientists back to say, what worldview is in sync with what we're seeing? And they came back to the Bible and to Christian faith. Archaeology is doing the same thing. For years and years, there were critics who said, we can't believe some of these stories in the Old Testament. There's no evidence of that physically. But archaeology, which is only a 150-year-old discipline, keeps unfolding feature after feature of things that have been buried over time. The most recent one in Israel is the opening of the the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus did a, a magnificent healing. There are critics of the Bible who said, we can't find any evidence of this Pool of Siloam. And then just a few years ago, there was a a dig as they were putting in some new plumbing for the ancient city, and they found some tiles and stopped everything, and the the historians and the archaeologists came in. And just about two weeks ago, they opened to the public the Pool of Siloam. It's beautiful, and it's marvelous, and it's grand, and uh, I look forward to going to Israel someday just to see the Pool of Siloam and to recognize that here's one of those places that the Bible talked about for years when all the critics said, there's no way that this happened. And guess what? It's there. DNA research is having the same impact on a number of scientists and saying, how is there this phenomenal amount of complexity in in the smallest strand of DNA? thought that the evolutionary process said we were supposed to move from simple forms to more complex. How do you get all this complexity in the most simple form? Where they say literally it's like having a library of Congress inside just one DNA strand. Last month, Tom Harrison and I went to a Cambridge roundtable. I may have mentioned this once or twice before. It happens a couple of years, a couple of times each year. Dave Tom, who is a friend of mine and the former chaplain at MIT, started this roundtable with a Harvard professor and an MIT professor about 15 or 20 years ago. Twice a year, professors from MIT, BU, and Harvard gather at the, the Harvard Faculty Club to hear a presentation from a scholar and a lively debate. Sometimes the scholar's an atheist, sometimes the scholar's a Christian, and there's debate that goes back and forth. And a handful of pastors and Christians who are graduates of Harvard or MIT are invited to come in and to round out the group. And I get invited about five or six years ago to attend this. It's an amazing opportunity where Christians and atheists and agnostics gather together, and in a very rational way, we talk about the truth claims that we base our views on. One Harvard PhD student uh, attended the event last month that we went to. It featured David Haig, who's an evolutionary biologist from Harvard, and William Lane Craig, who's one of the foremost Christian apologists of our day. They did this particular uh, address, not only at the, the Harvard MIT gathering, but at five other locations. They had another one at Yale. They had another one down near Washington, D.C. And, and, and these roundtables that started in Cambridge are now meeting in 20 different centers of learning every year around the country. The theme was, is it Genesis or is it our genes? I was asking about the beginning and, and how we understand life. 
Dave Tom, the chaplain, sent along one response after the meeting from a first-time attender. This guy was a Ph.D. student at Harvard, and this is what he wrote. The roundtable was a great way for me to have conversations with non-scientists about science and with scientists about religion. I realized that I can't find out my personal spiritual meaning if I only do classes and research without spending time on personal self-discovery. And then he noted that because of a conversation with somebody at the table where he was having dinner that night, he's decided to read Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. This kind of thing is happening in an amazing way because they've kind of laid down swords and said, we're going to approach creation with a measure of awe and humility. And when we do that, God is at work. Genesis invites us to explore the shape and structure of God's creation with awe and humility. All right, a couple of thoughts. What do you do with this? A couple of thoughts for some next steps. Here's the first one. Formulate rather than fight. What do I mean by that? Some of the best teachers in the world when they find people who are in diametrically opposed debates will challenge the person who's on one side to do the best and fairest job one can do in explaining the other person's viewpoint and vice versa. I would challenge you, if you look at this dogmatically and you see no value in the other viewpoint, adopt that viewpoint just for an intellectual exercise and try to formulate the best possible reasons one could have for holding that viewpoint. You might find that your debates become richer and there's more respect in the conversation. Second, focus on what we discover about God in Genesis. I believe that Genesis 1 is written more to tell us about the God who's behind, behind creation than it, is, than it is in giving us a step-by-step scientific explanation of creation. Genesis 1 was designed to lead us to marvel over God's greatness. So let's turn to Him. God, we, we give all this to You, and we ask that You will use our minds, that we use the Scriptures, and that You use what we can see from the world around us to lead us into truth about You and the world and about how we understand it. I pray that You would continue to develop within us both awe and humility about what You have done. We cannot explain it all, and we certainly cannot rule You out of every aspect of design and careful structure in this world. Thank You for placing us where we are on the only planet in the universe that has all these combinations that offer us life as we know it. Thank you for standing back and saying it is good. And now help us to go out into our world and project that goodness into the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.